Welcome to the Control Alt Azure podcast. I'm Yusuf. And I'm Tobias. Join us for a journey in the cloud. Hey there, and welcome to another episode of Control Alt Azure. My name is Tobias, and I'm back again with Yusuf. What's up? Hi, Tobias. Today is a happy day. Well, most days I feel I'm happy, but today especially is a happy day. I finally received my DBX286S device. That's a microphone pre-amplification slash processor device. So it's a rack-mountable audio gear. It's, it's fairly big. And I think I ordered this about three months ago because I figured there's perhaps a missing piece in my podcasting recording setup. And I did a lot of creative Googling that we like to call research. And I found out this is the device you're really going to need. So I did order this about three months ago. Then two months later, I figured, well, I haven't received that yet. I emailed the, the importer and they said, yeah, yeah, it's coming. So today I got the message, it's arrived. So it's sitting next to me, it's not installed yet. So perhaps a week or two from now, my audio will be even better with this small yet industrial device. Okay, uh, interesting. I'm sure that will be a great device to plug into your home server cloud system that you already set up. And I'm also sure there's a great reason for, for why you need this thing. I'm using my USB microphone still. I don't know how the audio quality is. I'm happy with it, but... If I ever go down the route of, you know, upgrading my audio equipment, I will definitely give you a ping on that because obviously you have all the devices required for a professional recording studio now. Exactly, and and by that time when you when you sort of wake up to this realization, you need all sorts of different devices. Then I might be moving on, and I could sell all of these fairly cheap for you. <laughs> there you go. So on my side, I'm on a keyboard mission. A keyboard mission for me is, you know, I, I spend all my day on the keyboard. So I write a lot of articles and I write a lot of documentation. I write a lot of code and a lot of scripts. I spend a lot of time using my keyboard. And in order to be productive, I need a great keyboard. So recently, my Logitech K810 keyboard that I've had for eight years, well, the same model for eight years, but I had to replace it once. I now, the last one, was so old that the battery started making noises and it started to uh, come some smoke out of the keyboard. So I felt it was time to to ditch it. And I realized it's been such a long time since I had an actual mechanical keyboard. You know, the type of keyboard we had when we grew up, when we start started learning about computers, you know, back in the 80s. You had these old, what was it, Keytronics, whatever the brand was. Uh, yeah, it was literally, yeah. Yeah, I think everyone had one of those. You had the click-at-a-click sound and a long distance to travel for each key. So I wanted to try that out. So the keyboard I had was a fairly small and light keyboard. Now I'm trying out a 10-keyless keyboard or a KL keyboard, which is essentially the normal keys and the arrow keys and the insert home, page up, page down, whatever, but not the numpad. So you save a little bit of space on the desk. And that works really well. But I got that as a mechanical keyboard because I thought, I mean, I was productive back in the 80s and 90s when I used a, a mechanical keyboard. So I'm going to try that out. I tried it out for about 10 minutes and realized I'm probably not going to use that mechanical keyboard ever again. 
because the distance I have to travel for each key press is quite long. So now I'm trying out the Logitech MX keys, which is closer to laptop keys. So they're fairly flat, but it still travels a little bit. So you get the sense of clicking and the sense of pressing them, but it's dead silent. So it's, it's pretty nice. I've increased my word per minute by a little bit. So I, I'm doing this test every day now with the different keyboards to see which one I'm actually typing faster on in different languages. Uh, so, so this one, which is a full width keyboard, I am actually most productive at the moment. So I'm sticking with that for the week. And then I'm going to, you know, try out the mechanical for another week just to see if there is a chance I will stick with it or I'm, I'm just going to keep with this one. So someone, someone told me, well, just get a new keyboard, whatever. It's just a keyboard. But when you spend 10 hours every day typing something on that device, it makes perfect sense to me to justify getting the right one and try a couple of different keyboards out to actually find a keyboard that makes it so seamless that you don't even think you have a keyboard because everything just needs to flow. So that's what I'm exploring, to find the perfect fit for my setup. I, I think I went through the same journey, perhaps not in as many details as you did last year. So I'm settled on a mechanical keyboard now, but this is the one with the uh, with the optomechanical switches, so it's not super loud, because often you need to type just a little bit when we are recording something, perhaps adding something on the notes or whatever. So I wanted this to be quiet. But one keyboard that I'm sort of hoping to eventually get is the Microsoft branded Surface keyboard. But that's with the with the uh, ergo design, so it's it's sort of split in half. But they don't seem to be selling that in Europe because, as you know, we need those special characters in our keyboards. Alrighty. So today, this is episode one hundred and three, Azure updates. So we do this typically once per month. We take a look at the interesting announcements and and what's what's being updated in Azure. Toby, would you like to start? What's top of mind on the updates for you? Yeah, sure. So uh, in September and October now, there's actually quite a few updates that came out. Obviously, we would need a lot more time than this recording to go through all the interesting ones. Uh, so I picked the ones that are most interesting to me and that I know a lot of people are looking to hear more about. So the first one on my list would be a preview feature. It's now available as a public preview, and that's dynamic concurrency in Azure Functions. That allows you to automatically determine the optimal per trigger con concurrency setting for your workload. So if you've used Azure Functions, uh, either if you've designed the architecture, if you are the developer, doesn't really matter. I'm pretty sure you've come across the uh, concurrency configuration. So you can configure how much workload each instance of that Azure Function can do at the same time. And this is usually something you have to figure out depending on what the functions are actually doing inside of that instance. So if you have something that is long running and, and heavy on compute or heavy on memory, you might not be able to run as many concurrent operations at the same time. For example, if you're triggering and listening on a queue and that queue gets 10 items, maybe you can process them in parallel because it's only about getting the item, parse some XML or JSON, put that into a table, super easy. But if it's about collecting data, aggregating it, making calculations, you know, more CPU or memory intensive workloads, maybe you cannot run 10 of them in parallel on the current pricing plan that you're on. So with dynamic concurrency settings, you know, this improves the performance of your applications because it optimizes the throughput for each instance 
and make real-time adjustments to your concurrency settings. And now that's the important key here, that you don't have to design and try out and you deploy and you figure out after one or two days, okay, this was not optimal. Let's try again with something else. Here, it's actually making real-time adjustments based on the workload that your functions have. So when your workload increases, it might adjust the concurrency settings appropriately so you don't run into health issues with your Azure function instance. So that's pretty cool. One important thing to note here is that this is in preview and it's supported by the service bus triggers. So if you're using service bus in any capacity, you should definitely check this out. If you're using something else, like I'm using Azure storage queues a lot, uh, which does not rely on, on the, the normal service bus, perhaps in the same capacity, then you know I'll just have to wait until this becomes available for whatever hooks or, or triggers that I have. So the good thing is that it's coming. I really like this. To sum up the benefits, you get improved throughput because the individual instances, they're not pulling more work than they can actually quickly process, which was a problem otherwise. You had to figure out the balance. And when at some point in production, you see that the instance of your function was suffering, it was because you're trying to do too many things at the same time. You're going to protect the health. So the runtime limits the concurrency levels to a function app instance uh, based on what it can handle because it can do this in real time. So that kind of protects you from overloading it, in, at least from that angle. You also have dynamic adjustments. So concurrency is adjusted up and down dynamically in real time, which I think is really cool. And this is based on your changing load patterns in the app. So if one week you have a lot of things going on and the next week you might not have, or even a couple of hours or days, this will adjust accordingly. So you don't have to make new deployments or update this yourself. And the configuration is super simple because the system learns by itself. So you don't need to actually try to determine all these things. So for me, this is a super welcome update and I'm super happy to see this on the roadmap. It's now, like I mentioned in public preview, um, to recap the title, it's Dynamic Concurrency in Azure Functions. Just wanted to repeat that because it sounds pretty cool. And we're using a lot of Azure Functions, so I know this will play a very critical part in our infrastructure. So I can't wait to try this out. So this is definitely something I did not know exists or is on the roadmap, but I believe that I do need this as well in, in the future. Great stuff. Um, on my list, uh, Windows 11 is now generally available on Azure Virtual Desktop. So AVD, which is the VDI, the Virtual Desktop Infrastructure Service on Azure, traditionally runs on Windows 10 workstations. And now there's official support for the final version of Windows 11 that was released in early October. And, and what's interesting about this is that it supports, or let's put it this way, Windows 11 requires the TPM 2.0 and secure boot capabilities from a VM. And this happens now on Azure through Trusted Launch, which is still in preview. So this is a setting that you enable when you provision a new VM. It needs to be generation two. And now with AVD, you can provision a new pool of workstations that will be Windows 11 that also conform to TPM2 and Secure Boot. So in a way, it's a tiny adjustment, but something that I feel is nice to have already because many companies are perhaps now looking at AVD, especially if they can get Windows 11 and not go back to Windows 10 anymore. All right, cool. Very welcome as well. So the next one on my list is still around Azure Functions. 
And this is Azure Functions Runtime 4 is now in public preview. So if you do work a lot with functions, I'm pretty sure you've noticed that uh, this is out now in preview. And that means there's a support for the following languages in the Astro Functions Runtime 4. So it's .NET 6, uh, Node.js 14, Python 3.8 um, and 3.9, uh, Java 8 and 11, PowerShell 7, and also custom handlers. Now, I want to mention this because I've actually used this now for some uh, compute-heavy workloads and some uh, message-based um, applications I have running. Uh, the applications I upgraded from .NET Core 3.1 to uh, .NET 6. And the reason I'm mentioning .NET 6 is that's also in preview. This is on the roadmap to be released in November 2021, so pretty soon. And that coincides with the planned GA release of Azure Functions Runtime 4. So if everything goes well, we will see Azure, Func Times, uh, Azure Functions Runtime 4 being released at the same time as .NET 6. The reason this is super important to understand why we want to uh, look for .NET 6 and not .NET 5 for Azure Functions is .NET 5 does not have the same type of support, the long LTS or long-term support for Azure Functions. And with .NET 6, you can still run in process. So there's two types of functions. There's the in-process, which is the traditional way you build functions. So if you're on .NET Core 3. whatever, you're running in-process. And then there's isolated process. And that's what uh, was introduced with the workers with .NET 5 for Azure Functions. Um, I tried to work with that a little bit. Didn't quite work out because I did that early on. I did eventually get that working, but it was perhaps not ideal. So now with .NET 6, I could upgrade all of my .NET 3. whatever projects to .NET 6 with just a few changes in the CS project file. I could make a couple of updates to the actual dependencies to get the, you know, the latest build and latest dependencies in there as well. But I don't have to change the model of how my function runs or operates. So I can just pretty much plug it in. So I'm running that in preview in my Azure subscriptions with .NET 6 on the Azure Functions runtime 4 right now. And that was super easy to upgrade because you don't need to switch this model to the isolated or uh, worker-based model. Now, it's important to understand here as well, because I did study the roadmap and have um, have had a couple of calls with Microsoft about it. The .NET 6 version of .NET is this last version to support the in-process model. So even if the upgrade now is easy for your Azure functions, you can get them up on .NET 6. So come November 2021, Maybe in GA, you want to upgrade everything to be on the latest version of the supported .NET. That's great. But as soon as .NET 7 comes, there is no more in-process. Everything is the worker-based, isolated process model. So you still have to do that part. You still have to operate it at some point. It's just you can kind of postpone that work now, get on the latest version of .NET, which is currently .NET 6. And then you can kind of, and look into the path of how you want to migrate that to the isolated worker models instead. So a lot of things around functions. I'm running this now and for some kind of insights into how it's operating, it's going really well. Performance is off the charts. I'm currently, it's been running now for two weeks. My .NET Core 3.1 project transacted about 700 million events per month. And I can see that with .NET 6, I'm still on par with that. So there's no changes. It's still working the same way. I don't have any new exceptions. I actually have a couple of less exceptions, but that's also because I made a couple of fixes. 
But based on the workload, I still see the same amount of data being streamed in. I'm handling the same type of workloads, and I'm processing all the same things the same way. So that's good. So if you are working with this and you want to explore it, take a look, but be aware of these changes I just said about .NET and what is supported and not supported. It seems like November timeframe will bring a lot of interesting uh, features becoming generally available, including .NET 6 now. Next up on my list is a bunch of public previews for Azure Form Recognizer. So this is part of the cognitive services, and they are quite a bit in interesting in the sense that, that these are specific updates to specific APIs as part of the Azure Form Recognizer. The first one is an update to the Document API. So there's a new API for applying pre-built AI models to automatically extract info from your documents. So you can still use the existing custom forms API, but now there's a more specific document API. So you can train the AI model based on the API and then using that model in whatever solutions later on. The next one is a custom forms API, which has now a signature detection capability. I believe it would even detect my signature that I quite quickly sometimes need to do. And then there's a receipts API for single page hotel receipts. I've never seen a single page hotel receipt. It's always five pages. Not because I use the minibar heavily, but often they have individualized everything that you've used at the hotel. The last one is an ID API. For now, it only supports US-based driver's licenses. Hopefully, the EU ones would be supported as well. This would be an interesting addition. So small changes in the sense in public preview as part of Azure Form Recognizer. I don't think I've ever used the Azure Form Recognizer, but it does sound like there are some things in there that could be interesting to explore. So I'll definitely take a look. So we'll have the link in the show notes. So I'll go click that myself. The next item on my agenda is, as always, some Azure Security Center updates. And there's one thing in preview, which is software inventory filters are now added to asset inventory. So the asset inventory page includes a filter where you can select machines running a specific software version. You can even specify the version of interest. So if you're looking for a specific version of a software, you can find that now on that filter on the software inventory list. So that's a small update. But still, for me, looking into all the devices and, and all the stuff that we have an inventory of, I think this is important. Uh, it just makes it easier to filter out things. There's another update that's good to know that is, so it doesn't come as a surprise, and that is prefixes of some alert types have changed from ARM underscore to VM underscore. So that's a logical reorganization of some Azure Defender plans that now have moved about 21 alerts from the Azure Defender for Resource Manager to Azure Defender for servers. So it's more a logical reorganization. And with that, they also renamed these alerts from ARM underscore to VM underscore. So just something to keep an eye out for. If you do spend a lot of time with alerts in, in Azure Security Center, then this is something you should definitely uh, recognize if you see it. So if you now see something VM underscore instead of ARM underscore, then that's the reason. Another thing in preview are two new recommendations to audit OS configurations for Azure security baseline compliance. And 
these two new recommendations are for Windows machines or for Linux machines. So the recommendations assess your machine's uh, compliance with the Windows security baseline and the Linux security baseline, respectively. And then they make use of the guest configuration feature of Azure Policy. And I think we talked about that briefly in one of the episodes in the past uh, about guest configurations. So using the guest configuration feature of Azure Policy to compare the OS configuration of a machine with the baseline that you have in Azure Security Benchmark, you kind of get the picture of whether or not this is uh, this is compliant or not. So still a couple of small updates. There are more updates with Azure Security Center, but to me, these were the notable ones. And uh, there's a lot of UI changes and a lot of changes to pages that have new buttons or things like that. Um, but these are the ones that at least impact organizations in a, in a broader way, either by the surprise of having ARM underscore rename to VM underscore or in the compliance aspect. So definitely more things coming there this year, I'm sure. Uh, there are some events still coming up from Microsoft, so I'm pretty sure we'll see a lot more investments in the security space. Every time they launch a new event, there's a million new updates in this space. So looking forward to see what happens there in the coming month as well. Same here, and it's been quite a while since we last spoke about Azure Security Center and Sentinel, so perhaps we need to revisit those two interesting services in the future. Next up on, on my list is our general availability of Azure AD joined virtual machines. So traditionally, when you, when you provision a Windows VM, you join that to AD. But then, then that dictates that you have to run this traditional on-premises style Active Directory setup. Now you can join those directly to Azure AD and also have the VMs automatically enrolled in Microsoft Endpoint Manager, which typically implies Intune. But there's two downsides here. And I think these two limitations are for now, hopefully not in the future. The first one is that if you join a VM to Azure AD and, and start managing that through Endpoint Manager, then Microsoft Store isn't supported for this type of VMs. And the wording on this is, is a bit hazy. So I am, I'm still unsure before testing this that is it so that you cannot run Microsoft Store within the VM and authenticate successfully? Or is it that you cannot benefit from any capabilities from Microsoft Store, even if you can access that. So this is perhaps something to test in the future. But the second one, single sign-on isn't supported for the VMs if they are Azure AD joined. And this is a, this is a bit interesting because obviously you'd ideally like to use single sign-on with your Azure AD account, which is then secured. But now it feels as if you have to go back to a username and a password. And I'm sort of wondering about this, and I need to dig deeper into this, because October is unofficially the passwordless month of the year. So you sort of want to move to a passwordless that we spoke about in a couple of episodes ago. But for now, it seems we couldn't use this, perhaps. Even then, it's great to get Azure AD joined support for VMs in general availability now. Yeah, that sounds really cool. A bit surprised with the SSO. I don't know if that's a, a thing that they will support in the future or if there's a reason for it, but good that you bring it up because this is something that I'm looking at uh, these type of VMs as well. So now I need to look at that thing additionally to see if that will be fixed or if there's a workaround. 
So the next item on my agenda is also a preview feature. Um, and this is the last item on, on my agenda this time. That is management group scope for Azure reservations. So Azure reservations, if you use them, you know that they're awesome. If you have not used them, the TLDR or the, the short version is you save money. So for us, we operate distributed cloud solutions and we have, as part of that, we have some Azure app services. And these app services, they serve a lot of requests over the web. So when uh, people use our tools from the browser, app.companyname.com, uh, they come to the application and they can use it. This is uh, hosted by Azure App Services. And after running this for a while, we now know that we have a minimum requirement on an app service of size P1 version 2 or P2 version 2 or whatever. So when we know what version uh, or pricing tier we need to be on, and we know that we need to have at least three instances, and we need to have this with high availability, and we're going to run this for X amount of years, because uh, it's not a short-term project. It's actually a product that we're offering. So this is going to be online for some time. And you can look into Azure reservations. And you can opt in and say, well, in this one subscription, any app services should uh, be, be quoted out to my Azure reservation. And you can say that I'm going to commit to three instances or 30 instances, whatever it is, of this type of app service for one year or three years. So in my case, I'm going to opt for probably one year first to see that it actually works. But in the, in the longer term, go for three years and then you save some money. Now, the update here, and which is what I said was the preview update, is, you know, for me, I have 30, 40, 50, 60 subscriptions. I have so many subscriptions, uh, you know, to isolate data, isolate customers, isolate our own environments and for different workloads. It's very hard to manage that. Now, with... This preview feature, they introduced this on management groups. So now you can get the discount applied to a management group and all the subscriptions within it. So that simplifies things a lot because I'm using management groups for all the subscriptions I have to create a, a kind of a logical hierarchy in, in Azure so I understand where things go. So we have development, QA, we have internal IT, we have production IT, cloud production. We have a bunch of different management groups. And then inside of each and every one of those, we have different subscriptions. Now I can either apply this to the root management group or to a specific one and say, you know, for everything in the production workload, we know we're going to use at least 15 uh, P1 version 2 uh, app service plans for the coming year. And then we can buy uh, reservations and we get a heavy discount on that. And I think you can get up to 40, 50 something percent, depending on how long you commit and what you commit to. So if you know you're using that, you can actually save a lot of money. So again, the preview feature here is being that you can now target a management group. So you don't have to target just a subscription. So you can say that this management group and everything inside of it should apply this reservation. So that's pretty cool. That's a welcomed addition. I'm using Azure reservations quite often, but I, I haven't really had the need yet uh, to scope it through the management group. But now that you mentioned that if you have multiple subscriptions, it makes sense. Let me revisit my last item, the general availability of Azure AD joint VMs. I, I started thinking when you were uh, going through the previous item that is it really so that SSO is not supported because it feels so, so uh, unorthodox to have this. And then I realized in, well, not so tiny writing, but on the side that I didn't see when I was going through the updates, this only applies 
to Azure Virtual Desktop. So if you provision a VM in Azure Virtual Desktop in a pool and have that join an Azure AD instead of an AD, then SSO for now is not supported. Otherwise, obviously it is. Then it Alrighty. makes a lot more sense. Yes. Alrighty. So this was all we had on our list for now. And the last bit is the unexpected question. And based my based on my calculations, it's my turn to ask you, Toby. So here goes. If you could get any superpower, but in exchange had to give up one of your seven senses, what would you choose? And if you're thinking what the seven senses are, they are sight, hearing, smell, taste, touch, movement, and body position. Okay, interesting. There's there's a lot of replies in my mind right now for this one. I'm gonna I'm gonna go with something different. I think that my superpower would be time travel, because with time travel, both back and forth in time, you can accomplish a lot of things. If nothing else, I might go back to 2009 and. and buy a bunch of Bitcoins or buy a majority of the Bitcoins and then put an end to it so it doesn't ruin the environment. But I think time travel, for whatever reason, you can go back and forth to see how things will be in the future. You can also go back to to watch historical events. I would probably then, because I have to lose one of my senses, I would say that the smell is a good thing to uh, to lose. I mean, I love food and I'm, you know, I... I really love the culinary arts and I cook a lot and I do a lot of stuff with food. So obviously without the smell, that wouldn't really work. But for this point in time, when I'm actually traveling in time, let's say I'm going back in time, perhaps smell is not something I want to experience when I go back in time, depending on how far back and where I'm going to land. So my superpower would be time travel and I would lose my sense of smelling because everything else I would probably need during my, my travels. So that's one angle to the answer. I've had, you know, a lot of others where it's, you know, about flying or something else, super strength, whatever. But I think this is a softer side to the superpower, just be able to travel in, in time and space uh, without actually smelling the bad parts of that. That sounds like a super optimized approach. I really liked like this thinking here. All righty. This was, this was fun as always. Thank you for joining us this week and we hope you join us next week as well. All right, see you then. Thank you for tuning in to the Control-Alt-Azure podcast. Find out more and read the show notes on controlaltazure.com. Stay tuned.